Let's have a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we take a little of what you've given us, Lord, and give it back, I pray that you would take it and bless it and multiply it and use it to spread your gospel in this city, county, state, country, and across this world, Lord. In your Son's name, amen. Please rise for the doxology. This morning we'll be starting in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We'll be starting a new study where we will go entirely through the book of Hebrews, concomitant to a study of faith. Oh, sorry, I'm supposed to put this thing on. It's too loud or quiet, let me know, just so the folks at home can hear. Now, the thing about Hebrews is it's a little different than the other books in the Bible. There was a lot of consternation even in the early church about the book of Hebrews and its place in things. It seems almost like a commentary on the Gospels, and yet its scope is deeply Jewish. Uh, you remember there was a little bit of a conversation between Paul and Peter, and a lot of that conversation came down to who's going to the Gentiles and who's going to the Jews. Ultimately, they both did double duty. But at the same time, as far as the writer of this book, sometimes they argued about who it was. A lot of people said it was the Apostle Paul. Some people said, but it's a little different than his other writings, and the other ones are so personal. He's always saying, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm writing this book to these people for this reason. That's why there are cities and churches uh, that are the names of all of his books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Romans. We know exactly who he's writing to. And this one is more general in its scope. But a lot of the scholars have just said it's because he's writing to a specific people with a specific understanding and a specific background. You know how much the Apostle Paul made of his Jewish ancestry and heritage. He considered it all to be a benefit to him, especially in his evangelization and church planting and mission. But at the same time... Uh, he considered it to be a detriment to him in as far as he had followed the traditions and they had taken him away from Christ. In other words, they actually became a barrier before his eyes to coming to Christ. And so he would carry it in one hand and he would put it behind him with the other. But I'm one of the people that holds to the old view that this was all written by the Apostle Paul. I see his fingerprints in it everywhere. This person speaks the way he does and writes the way he does and everybody in the Bible doesn't. One of the primary features of the contemporary liberal church is they have a Matthean gospel and they have a Lucan gospel and they have a Johnine gospel but they don't really accept these gospels to reconcile to themselves because there were different writers at different times whereas our understanding of scripture is that all of this was breathed out by God and superintended by him in such a way that Genesis through to the revelation this is all one message from one God perhaps through many pens but written by one God. And so the reconciliation of Hebrews with the other books is very easy for me, but it might be hard for y'all. Uh, in a sense, I don't care who wrote it. As long as it's God's word, the authorship doesn't matter that much. The early church accepted it as being the very words of God, and so do we. So that might come up in your conversations with people, but at the same time, just saying Paul wrote it is, is entirely acceptable. Now let's take a look at chapter 11 before we go to chapter 1 for some important reasons. Hebrews chapter 11, I think your pew Bible is 1,283. Does that sound good? Here we get to something that's very important to a lot of you. When we say that we're justified by grace through faith, we want to know what faith is. 
I'm going to get into a conversation that is a major pivot between all of the churches on earth today. Just about all of them define themselves by what they do with a few of these passages in regard to faith. It is one of the most important things. There are different thinkers and different teachers that are famous and they come through and they start a movement. One of the things that you know that I do is I try to eschew any possible movements. In other words, if there's a movement and it's coming through town and they're printing t-shirts and it's going to be a great movement and we're all going to join this movement, I probably won't show up to the party. I'm the old-fashioned fuddy-duddy that just wants to be in the historic faith. That's what I believe. That's what was handed to me. I love the old confessions. I love the old creeds. I love the old ways. The old is better. It's just like wine. The old is better. And when we get to something like this, I will be staying with the historical church and the great people whose names you have heard throughout history, those whispered names, those hallowed elders, Uh, And not with the new fruity ideas that are coming down the pipe. Because they come through every generation, right? And a few of them you hear and they come through and they seem to gather the entire church to follow them for like a generation. And then you look back and you're like, where are you, fellas? And it's already gone. One of those has come into the church in this idea that really the definition of faith is love and good works. The definition of faith is love and good works. And it wouldn't be so powerful in the churches if there weren't some verses that might lead you to that conclusion, right? I mean, you're talking about some of the top scholars in the world from places that have bigger names, like, you know, Yale and Harvard and their divinity schools and things like that. They're impressive places. And so when it comes from the upper echelons and the ivory towers of human society, it's very easy to respect But then when we get deeper into the Bible and the story of it from beginning to end. So here's the thing. Justification by grace alone through faith by believing in Christ is not the same as justification by the how many good works you do. And we're going to look at a play that goes through scripture in which they argue about this very matter. In other words, what I want you to understand, because what I think makes you the most powerful and the strongest in your faith, is if you're convinced that's what scripture teaches. Then people can come at you with any religion and any philosophy and any kind of nonsense they want, any tricky arguments, anything they bring at you, as long as you know, well, Scripture teaches this, you're already strong and you're already safe. In this first verse, he starts to talk about faith because faith in the Bible can be tricky. What I mean by that is he uses faith and the Bible uses faith in different ways at different times, right? Faith is the assurance. So first, he talks about that faith is the assurance. It's an assurance of what? Of things hoped for. So hope and faith are not the same thing. They seem similar, but hope is always for something you do not have yet. Faith is for something you're believing now. The conviction of things not seen. You haven't seen them yet, but you believe them. That's why it's hope. For by it, the people of old, some translations will say the elders or the ancients, received their commendation. By faith, they received it. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Then he starts to talk about some of the ancients. In this entire chapter, he keeps going back to the Old Testament to talk about people that were justified by faith all the way back at the beginning. And so that's the way we're going to use this. Even as we go through all of Hebrews, we're going to use Hebrews 11 as the context. And when they get to one of these people from the Old Testament, we will stop and listen to their story. Not today, because this is the introduction sermon, right? By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We'll get into that next week. It's quite a mouthful. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, 
he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was out to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. Since she considered faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. As it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, I know that's long to read a whole chapter, but he's basically explaining the entire Bible to us, isn't he? He's going all the way back to the beginning and going through all of the famous figures and what they had to do with the story as a whole, and he connects it all to faith. Not a dead faith, a living and a vibrant faith. Let's look at James chapter 2. Now, I'll tell you something that happens these days. People set up a war between the Apostle Paul and James. Not a good idea. For what personal affiliation and familial parentage is James famous? 
Now, this is going to be hard for some of you to take, but it is the story of the Bible. James is the physical brother of Jesus, born of Mary. In the Bible, you know, and we can get into the places where it teaches it, because I know that it's a little bit hard to accept, but Mary and Joseph had other kids. They had lots of other kids. And the other kids show up in the Bible on an ongoing basis. And one of them was James, and James was the one that did not believe Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus, and he didn't believe in the resurrection. James was actually converted after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so James comes into the story pretty late, but as the physical brother of Jesus to become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. We remember Peter was also in Jerusalem, but not doing exactly the same job as James. We had the apostles, but there were only 12, and only 12 at a time. And Judas was taken away, and he was replaced by another. But when the 12 were there, and they could not handle the load of the increasing size of the church... They started to find men chosen by the congregations and they would lay hands on them and bless them and make them pastors over the churches in the different areas. And the one in Jerusalem was Jesus' physical brother, not the physical son of Joseph, but the physical, uh, Jesus was not the physical son of Joseph, but James was one of the physical children of Joseph and Mary. So I know we want to retain Mary and we want to protect her from any possible inculcations of sin. But there's nothing wrong with a married woman having children with her husband. It's not a sin. It's a blessing. You go back to Genesis and all the way through, it's always been a blessing. So here we're talking about Jesus' physical brother after the resurrection, pastoring the churches. And in chapter 2 he says, My brothers, show no partiality. Hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man comes into your church wearing fine clothes in your assembly, and a poor man comes in in shabby clothes, and you pay attention to the one who hears, wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones that oppress you and the ones that drag you into court? And are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So one of the reasons that James is taking such a prominent place in contemporary society is because of the social gospel And the understanding that the entire thrust of the Bible is just the transformation of human societies from injustice to justice. You might have heard about this as social justice. Well, I'm going to tell you something I've told you before. The Bible does teach a social justice, but it's not the one that's being carried by contemporary society. They're very different. Is God concerned about well-being and justice in the church? He is. Is he concerned about it in the entire world? He is. But at the same time, his justice is not the same as any and every justice that anyone can think of at any time. If you want to understand God's justice and what he thinks is just and right and wrong and how even societies are supposed to be measured by these things, read the Old Testament. And you'll find out that righteousness and justice and even equality before the law happens all the way through the Bible. That's where we learn it. Every kind of social justice thrown out there is not necessarily in any sense godly. So James is talking about these things. And don't we get a sense that he is teaching something in conformity with the whole rest of the Bible in the way that we're supposed to treat each other? We do. And that sets up the context for the rest of this chapter. He's talking about the laws of God, that they still matter, that they're eternal, that they're unchangeable. Uh. With this, as we get down to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? Now, as we read through this, here's what happens when you read anybody's arguments, when you hear anybody debate. Who has the edge in any debate? The second person that talks. Why is it the second person? Because the first person always sounds right until you hear the second person, right? 
So the first person puts forth all their stuff. The second guy gets to put forth their stuff and refute the first guy. And then the, second, the first guy always wants their chance to get up there and answer the second guy, right? But the second guy always has the edge. In this, you're going to hear things that if I were to tell you he's really saying that faith is good works, you might get that impression because you haven't yet heard the Apostle Paul. Here, he says that there's a difference between faith and works, though. He's not saying that faith is good works or that you're justified by the good works themselves. He's making a distinction so that you also will see that there's a fake faith. There are two empty faiths. One is when people say they have faith, but they have no love. They say they have faith, but they have no, you know what love is? I'm going to tell you what it is, good works. Now, we don't like the phrase good works, but that's what it is. Love is when you do good things for God and your neighbor. You're commanded to do that. James says you're commanded to do it. He wants to see you do it. But it's an empty and dead faith if there are no good works. The other dead faith is if it's all good works and no faith in Christ. They're both just as empty. But he's only talking about the one. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled... What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not saying faith doesn't save. He's saying there's this emptied out version of faith that he's going to speak to because it's floating around at that time then. Is it still around today? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So James answers that by saying, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. He's not saying, I'll show you my works by my works. He's saying, I'll show you that I believe in Jesus Christ by the things I do and the way that I live. Now, here's another danger. Many of you went through this thing back 20, 30 years ago when a lot of people said that you get into the kingdom of God through faith, but you stay in through your good works. Now, I'm glad we're past that moment because that was a different kind of a heresy, right? You don't get in through your good works. You don't stay in through your good works. At the same time, if you have no works, that's a good time to question what in the world you're doing in a church. You believe that God is one. You do well, but even the demons believe that. So you can't just stand around holding your theology like some kind of a gold cup and think you've got it all handled because your theology is in order. Even the, de- even the demons probably know theology a little better than you or I, Right? So it's not just all about knowing stuff. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Wait a minute. The writer of Hebrews just said something different. So you see where the controversy comes in here. Uh, you guys remember this, uh, that, that German monk. What was his name? Oh, Martin Luther, right? Any Lutherans in here? Oh, my. We can sing it if you want. I know all the words. Uh, Martin Luther at one time, early in his faith, you have to remember that all the time of his training and becoming a priest, even a priest that handled the sacraments in the church, he had never actually read the Bible. It was a strange time. The nuns weren't allowed to read the Bible. Most of them couldn't read at all. At the same time, when they learned about religion, they tended to learn it from certain groups of the church fathers and not from the Bible itself. So they knew a lot about religion, not a lot about Christ or the Bible. Then he comes to the place where he reads it, and he's shocked by the things that he sees there, right? And he reads first Galatians, which freaks him out entirely. Then he reads Romans, and he says, at that point, I became a Christian because I saw that we're saved by grace through faith and not by good works. Then he got to James because, you know, you couldn't get a whole Bible in those days. They just invented the printing press. So you basically got one book at a time, and he gets James, and he reads it. He goes, this is trash. He goes, this isn't the Bible. This is against the Bible because he read these words, and he called it a right straw epistle. What he means is it's made of straw. It's empty. It shouldn't be in the Bible at all. He freaked out for a good couple of years until he had time to sit on it for a while and reconcile it with the rest of the Bible because he said in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, but the faith was not identical to the works. 
So then he came to the understanding of James that James is just saying an emptied out faith will have no effect on a person's life. If there's no repentance, there's no faith. If there's no love, there's no faith. He seems to be saying something, but he just said Abraham is justified by works. We've got to be careful with that because Hebrews just said something different. We're about to read the Apostle Paul and he's going to say something different also. I need to bring you all the way in on the debate because it is a huge debate in the church. And so the scripture was fulfilled, verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a famous line from Genesis, also central to all our understandings of these things because it goes all the way through the Bible. It says in Genesis that Abraham was considered righteous on the basis of his faith and not his good works. Do you remember? Have you read the whole story of Abraham? I swear to you, if you read the whole story until the last like 10 minutes of his life, you would totally think he was a pagan. He didn't have any good works. That's God's message to us about salvation. He was in trouble constantly. And yet at the end of his life, he believed God. And God credited him with righteousness in the absence of a holy life before his conversion. For those of you that have lived for Christ all of your life and kind of think you've got salvation coming as a debt that God owes you for living a certain life, uh, you don't get that story in the Bible anywhere. You've only done at the end of your life what you were expected to do. No special benefits. And he was called a friend by God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that's got to be a hard one. If that's not a hard one for you, you just haven't been paying attention. That's a hard one for all of us. Because he seems to be saying something directly contrary to the Apostle Paul. Is it possible that he is? Well, when you look at the context of everything that he's been saying, he is not talking about justification as how we are reconciled to God. He's talking about how we are seen by other people as having received the grace of God. I know that's a little bit tricky. Let's get back to it. James chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 4. What we want to do is at the end of this sermon have them both be right. (laughs) So here's the Apostle Paul writing about the same thing as James, same Abraham, same issue. Romans chapter 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about. But not before God. For what does scripture say? Same verse. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as something owed to him. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also from the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Just to go on, let's go to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who would be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. So you see us go back to this again and again and again. But when he's talking about Abraham, he says plainly, Abraham's works were not credited to him as righteousness. Did he have works, though? Writer of Hebrews, writer of James, writer of Romans, all say that he had works. But here, when we put a spotlight on the specific issue of, but was he saved by the works? The Apostle Paul says no. Now, here's the big reconciliation. You've got an entire segment of the church that says it's all works. All God wants to see you is do good, be good people, and you will inherit salvation. Salvation by works alone, sometimes you can call the works faith. You've got another segment of the church that says it's all about faith, 
You don't have to obey the laws of God. Go forth and sin all the more that God can give you more grace. God doesn't care what you do. He doesn't care how you live. He doesn't care about sin. He just wants faith. Now, that definition of faith is not the one you've seen here in any particular place, right? Then you've got this faith that you're seeing a struggle of in the Bible that God is trying to proclaim to you in which there is faith. And you're saved by faith through grace alone apart from your good works. But the expression of the gratitude and the love that you have for God because of what he's done for you will be in the commendation to a holy life. If there's no holy life, there's been no faith. But at the same time, your good works will not add a single scintilla to your salvation. We'll go over this more and more. The reason it's so important for you to understand it is because, you know, I feel it. There's a battle for y'all's souls. For the denomination soul, for the church and the world soul, the battle is not really different than it's ever been before. A lot of them are done by just intellectually sophisticated people from the ivory towers that have interesting ideas. They're not part of the church, but they write the books that the church reads. A lot of them are actually the doctrines of demons and spiritual forces of darkness trying to sweep the church into a place of ineffectualism and a lack of faith. But there's also the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is rock solid, and everything we do has to be built on it. Here in chapter 5 of Romans, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace by which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. Now we're going to get deeper and deeper into those passages, but now I've got the passage that I want you to memorize for next week. Are you ready? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I'm totally willing to give you candy if you memorize this verse by next week. What kind of candy? What do you like? Hey, I was with y'all. I didn't always have kids. I had all those stupid ideas about kids. My kids will never be babysat by the TV. I will never give my kids things to get them to do the things they're supposed to do. Uh, That goes away quick, doesn't it? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's one of the key things. How do we receive it? Not by good works. By faith. Once you've got it, you might get some good works. And frankly, I'd like to see them. No, but I'm, I'm kidding. But, uh, but you receive it by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, not our righteousness. Because his divine forbearance, he passed over your former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a hard line. God has to maintain his justice, he has to be just, and he has to justify you at the same time. We're going to bounce around, you know, another time on those verses uh, by Romans. How many of you guys have heard of N.T. Wright? He's probably the most notable New Testament scholar in the world today. People love him. He was a big deal in the Anglican church for quite a while, uh, until, you know, they they nicely suggested that he retire. Uh, But a big part of this is whether or not the interpretation of the Bible is rightly that faith is just you doing good works of love or whether or not faith is that through which you are justified but distinguishable from your good works. 
This gets down to the very definition of the gospel. I'm not trying to be subtle with you, but it's a deep well. We have to treat it like one. This gospel that these churches have been worshiping through for the last 500 years and that we would say the churches believe for the last 2,000 years, we would say that goes all the way back to Abraham, we're going to hold on to it. We're going to hold on tight. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for this great blessing in the name of Jesus Christ that you have given us your gospel. You have given it to us as both a window to the soul, Lord God, as an, and as an open door to heaven. And as your light comes to us, Lord God, let us grasp onto it powerfully. Let us hold on to it with all of our might as you hold on to us. And we thank you for this great blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to take the Lord's Supper. That took longer than I thought it was. You know... When, when we're doing the elements, we guess as to how many people think we're going to be here. When we're planning a sermon, we guess as to how long we think it'll be. Sometimes it's a little longer. I can tell that you notice these things sometimes. Uh, so I was going to go into this whole thing about who takes the Lord's Supper today. But, uh, you know, we'll get to it next time. But here's the thing. I'm going to read the latter portion of this before reading the former per- portion. Because there's this thing called fencing the table. There's a thing called open communion where you just have communion and everybody can take it. I I believe that's really unbiblical. That's just not the way they did it in the Bible. Then there's closed communion where nobody but us can take it. And that's just too tight. That's tighter than the Bible. But at the same time, to warn people not to do something that could be detrimental or harmful to them, that's entirely biblical. Unfortunately, the Apostle Paul messed it up and did it in verse 27 when he really should have done it in verse 22. That's a joke. Okay. But he does the warning after because he's not administrating the Lord's Supper here, he's explaining it. So I'm going to read you the warning before we take the supper. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person first examine himself, then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on themselves. This is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with others. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him go home to eat. If anyone's thirsty, let him go home to drink. And when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but for blessing. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So what he's saying is this. If you are a believer in the person and work of Jesus Christ, this meal is for you. If you are not a believer in the person and work of Jesus Christ, this meal is not for you. This is a family meal, and we come together to eat it. But you do have to be a member of the family. We hate to exclude anyone, but this is not an exclusion we are doing as a church. This is an exclusion that God does in his Bible. And so if you hunger and thirst for Christ, come, the meal is for you. But if you do not believe, it is not. Uh, We'll go ahead and uh, sing the song. And as we're singing, uh, it'll be, uh, O Sacred Head, please come forth and receive the elements. Which number is it? It's number 142.
please be seated. So Christian, in our understanding of these things, as we read in our little confessional statement and catechism statement today, we do not believe that this becomes flesh and blood. It represents it. As Augustine wrote on this, there is a sign and there is the thing signified by the sign. But we do believe it is a means of grace. Now, uh, often in churches like this, it comes up that perhaps there's some kind of a baptismal regeneration where we believe that when someone is baptized, the actual grace of salvation flows into them. And that is not true. That is not our understanding of these things. But there are different graces spoken of in Scripture. Uh, The grace of faith is one, the grace of comfort, the grace of healing. So we do believe that grace is exhibited in this meal, but it does not mean that it actually has magical powers to save someone, to change their mind. That's why we read this other passage, because we wanted people to know that you cannot actually participate in the supper apart from faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is effective to those that believe, and to those that do not believe, it is not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Now, because this is a picture from God, we're supposed to chew it, grind it with our teeth, taste it with our tongue, swallow it, and it goes down and becomes a part of our very bones and our very blood. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper. This is why we do this second. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, and as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Lord God, our great Father. We thank you for inviting us together to eat this meal with you. We know, Lord God, that we are fed in our bodies in this way, but we are fed in our spirits by your spirit. We thank you, Lord God, for all of the nutrition of your life, death, and resurrection given to us. We thank you, Lord God, that even this meal is a promise of our resurrection from the dead. We thank you, Lord God, for your grace and the great gifts that you've given. We thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise we sing our closing hymn, number 237. How firm a foundation.
God look up and receive the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.